Welcome to the Arise Church podcast, where we're awakening the world to the reality of Jesus. So I was leaving my college dorm room one day. I think it was a sophomore, junior in college, and I was leaving from a time of private prayer. And it had been a couple of weeks that I'd been praying every afternoon in my dorm room. I had come to this realization that if God were real, then he would probably speak like he did in the New Testament, or most likely the book of Acts. I think I had heard some students talk about, you know, hearing God's voice, that type of thing, and it had inspired me. And so um, in my maturity, you know, as a 20-year-old in a college dorm room, I began saying every day in prayer, God, if you're real, speak to me like you did in the book of Acts. And it started out with, um, you know, simply silence. And that was uh, pretty frustrating. Well, but actually, it wasn't just silence. It was also, um, I had this phrase that would zip through my head. It seemed like day after day. And it was the phrase, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you day after day. Felt that I heard this. And that was actually extra frustrating because what was the one most obvious thing that God would say to someone if given the opportunity? It's I love you. So not only was God silent, but I'm not being creative enough in my own mind to come up with um, imaginative words of what God would speak to me. And so I was leaving my dorm room, headed to class. I was late and I ran into a friend on the way. He's more of an acquaintance. His name was, his name is Matt. And I remember Matt stopped me and he said, Austin, um, would it be okay that I pray for you? I remember pulling out my phone, looking at the time, and I said, um, yeah, you can pray for me. Just make it quick. You know, I'm, I'm late for class. And so Matt slapped his hand on my shoulder, and he said, God, I, I thank you. He just jumped into prayer. I thank you that you speak to Austin, even if it's as simple and profound as to tell him that you love him. And he said, uh, he said, amen, and then he shuffled along. I mean, I think I'd made him feel fairly insecure about um, inconveniencing me on my way to class. And he probably felt self-conscious as well about giving a prayer that was so generic. I stood there with my mouth open, you know, pretty amazed at what had just happened, pretty astonished. I went to class, but I couldn't focus on the lecture. It became obvious to me in that moment that God actually was real, and that Jesus actually was speaking, and that you could hear his voice and have a relationship with him. Of course, I wasn't articulating all of that with so much clarity in the moment, but that was one of the few times in college where it became obvious to me that God wasn't a concept or a philosophy or a morality. God was and is Jesus alive, living loving presence, someone that you could know with greater and greater intimacy, someone who actually might speak to you and who you could experience. Most of us, we can quote John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. I think at this point, I'm still repeating that in the King James like I learned it in grade school. I'm not sure. Many of us can articulate, you know, Jesus came from, he- from heaven in human form so that we could have life with God after death. Plot twist, John 17, 3. 
Jesus defines eternal life. And he says, eternal life is this, that they would know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So life in relationship with God isn't just secured after death. In Jesus' own definitions of eternal life, it happens right now. We actually enter into salvation by being saved from sin into relationship with God. Eternal life isn't something that happens when you die. Eternal living is something that can happen in the presence of God right now. And so we talk a lot, as Maddie shared, around Arise about encounter and about the awakened life, actually knowing the, what God is speaking to you, what his presence is leading you to do, being aware and awake of who Jesus is and how he's guiding. And that is why we talk so much about prayer, because prayer is the place where you come to know God with greater and greater intimacy. Not exclusively, but I would argue probably primarily. My last um, semester at seminary, I was in a course with uh, a few other men that we did a, a small group. The professor forced us into bands, and he had us answer questions uh, that were very personal with complete strangers, and I found myself in a, in a banding-type um, discussion with someone that I had a lot of respect with on campus. He was high-achieving and helped to lead the, the chapels. He um, talked about the church that he was going to take over of some size after graduation. And one of the questions was, when was the last time that you experienced God in prayer? When was the last time? Maybe we could answer that question, you know, internally. Was the last time that, that you experienced God in prayer? And, and a couple people answered, and, and he said, um, you know, I don't actually know that I've ever experienced God in prayer. If you were to really press me on it, you know, he could give you the, the five theories of atonement and talk about the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, and he said, I, I don't know that I could tell you what the point of prayer actually is. And it highlighted to me that it's possible to know a lot about God. It's possible to have seminary degrees and get Bible college degrees and go and even pastor or be very involved in your church or to lead in Christian activities, but to never actually come into a living, active relationship with God. It's possible to do a lot of things for God without ever receiving the belovedness that Jesus carried for you on the cross in your actual life. And that's why it's so important for us that we dive deeper and deeper into prayer because prayer is the core of the awakened life. And I really think if you were to narrow down all of Christianity across the streams, regardless of tradition, if you were to move beyond the, the vestments or the house church meals or um, the icons in the Greek Orthodox world into the heart of what everyone's attempting to do, it's simply to maintain connection and communion with God through Jesus. And that's why we love prayer. It's because prayer is the place where we actually learn to recognize that presence of God for ourselves in our everyday life. And there are many ways to pray, of course. You could pray recorded prayers. You could pray the scriptures, you know, Lectio Divina for all you Latin nerds out there. You could pray in tongues, or you could pray liturgically in the Vespers. You could pray spontaneously. You could 
all sorts of different types of prayer are acceptable because prayer, at the end of the day, it's very simply just communing and communicating with God. Howard Thurman, he's a theologian from the early 20th century. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited that Martin Luther King Jr. kept a copy of for a lot of his um, peaceful protest. He's a wonderful theologian, spiritual formation expert. I would encourage you to, to read some of his writings. He said that prayer is a form of communication between man and God, and between God and man. And he said, I find it interesting that the disciples, if given the opportunity to ask Jesus any question, they asked this one recorded question. Lord, teach us how to pray. I think Howard Thurman, he nails it. That prayer is super simple. You know, it's communication in both directions, but it's incredibly, incredibly profound because the depths to which you can come to know God with intimacy are endless. They're infinite. And so this January and February, we're going to talk about prayer. And we're not just going to talk about it. We're going to learn different forms of prayer. And each week, we will receive different prayer challenges where we will have the opportunity to pray in fresh and new ways on our own. And I'm really excited for this. Some of the ways that you'll be challenged to pray or invited to, you will uh, synergize with. They'll be for your personality. You'll find yourself coming to life and awareness of God. And some of them you'll think, eh, maybe it's for someone else. And each week, we'll be able to process that together. Um, our friends at Practicing the Way are helping us, so we'll watch Practicing the Way videos on the practice of prayer, and during the week, we can practice them ourselves and then come back together and discuss it um, week in and week out. And then in February, we'll have friends from across the city and the network who will uh, talk to us about different forms of corporate prayer. And so we did a lot of work. We tried very hard. Um, we did a lot of creative brainstorming. What do we call this focus for the church? It's a mega focus. Um, nutrients that are essential for our community brought right into the ground of our lives to, for us to root ourselves in. What should we call this focus? Um, we are going to call it prayer. We're going we're to say this is prayer. <laughs> Okay, and I hope that you deep dive into prayer with us. And Daniel today is our hero for prayer. And he is our example of how we take our first steps into having a deepening prayer life and awareness of God. Because before we can practice different forms of prayer, it's important for us to actually have a rhythm of secret prayer. And so as Viasia read so eloquently for us out of Daniel 6, um, we see that Daniel comes into uh, the heart of secret prayer. Pete Grieg says that prayer is called what it is because of the Latin root from which it comes. The word precarious, hello Latin nerds, uh, we're back. He says when times are precarious, that's when we pray. And Daniel, in Daniel 6, has found himself in a precarious time. I'm sure many of us know the story of Daniel, but I'll go ahead and lay it out basic for us again. Daniel is taken as a child from Israel. He's brought to the, um, is it the, I guess the country or the city of Babylon. He is brought into the palace as a young man, and he finds favor with the kings. And he ends up in these wild scenarios where he's interpreting their dreams, and they're giving him jobs and positions of power, and he actually lands the highest ranking position that is not king. And his friends at the peer level 
are jealous, and they want to take him out. Daniel was able to find this position of power because of his faithfulness. It says that there was nothing wrong with him that they could find. He was completely faithful and devoted to the king. But there's another reason that Daniel had favor and kept receiving promotions. It's because he was also faithful to God. He maintained a, a very strident devotion um, to, to the God of Israel. And in brought into a pagan society, he refused to lose the spiritual rhythms that anchored him both in his identity as an Israelite and also in the presence of God. And so his peers said, well, we can't get him with his faithfulness to the king. Let's bring his faithfulness to the king in conflict with his faithfulness to God. And this is the trick. Anytime we're looking to become more devoted to God, say, for instance, in the practice of prayer, it's going to come in conflict with the idols of our society. And so how does Daniel respond to this decree that you will, if you pray to anyone else but King Darius for 30 days, be thrown into a den of lions? I don't know if that's hard for you to connect with as it is with me a little bit. Um, every once in a while, Haven will just growl at me, and I'll say, bear or lion, and then she'll give me the preferred animal of the night. But, I mean, that's pretty threatening, right? Be thrown into a den with lions. <laughs> and I think it's fascinating how Daniel responds, you know. He could have easily said, nah, I've been praying for some time now, and... Um, What's well, 30 days? I mean, I'll come back in February. God, you got things right. Okay, I'll see you then. He could have just opted not to pray. He could have opted to be a little more secretive, you know, switch it up, go in the middle of the night type thing. But for some reason, his rhythm of secret prayer was more important to him than his appearance or maintaining positions of power. So verse 10 tells us that Daniel went into a room and closed the door where the windows were open towards Jerusalem. This was his uh, old homeland. It says that three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before, probably for his whole life. Daniel wouldn't allow the idols of his time to bully him out of devotion to God, and the anchoring practice that kept him within his Jewish identity and the presence was that of secret prayer. That of secret prayer. And it wasn't Secret prayer wasn't just important to Daniel. It was also important to another important person. Maybe you've heard of him, Jesus. We find that Jesus had rhythms of secret prayer. Maybe you've heard Jesus' famous words that you only say what I hear the Father speak, only do what I see the Father say. Well, how do you see an invisible God? How do you hear someone who doesn't speak audibly? It's not by praying in Kroger. It's by going to a secret place. Actually, Jesus says in Matthew 6, he says, when you pray, go into a room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is in secret. And then we find it all over the Gospels. I mean, Matthew 14 says Jesus dismissed crowds. He was surrounded by people. So what did he do? He went up to the mountainside by himself to pray. He was there all evening alone. Luke 9 says Jesus was one time praying in private, and, um, and, and he was in a house that he went off to a solitary place to pray. Um, Mark 1, Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, and they asked him, uh, they found him in private, and, they asked, and Jesus asked them, who do the crowds 
uh, say that I am. So, you know, our hero Daniel and our greatest hero Jesus shows us that we must devote ourselves to God in the place, in the practice of secret prayer. And so many of us already have this rhythm, right? Some of us are right in the, the rhythm of secret prayer. Maybe others of us have done it before, but have allowed that practice to go by the wayside over time, or maybe some of us are not Christians at all, and we're here just trying to discover what it is this whole Christianity thing is about. So we don't have a practice of secret prayer. You know, Daniel, he was exiled in literal Babylon, and uh, the idols there were big kings. You know, they're very obvious. But throughout the scriptures, um, any culture who presents idols that challenge our devotion to God is referred to as Babylon. So anytime we're in a society where devotion to God is maybe made a little more difficult than it should be, we can see the spirit of, of Babylon. It, so Daniel had it in some ways easy, you know, king's out to get you, reject it, go to God in prayer. But for us, I think our prayer lives are challenged, and our devotion to God is a little more difficult because our idols are subtle. Take Tech distraction, for instance. Tech distraction. Like social media notifications that draw us to our phone, we can become addicted to images and videos and entertainment. And tech distraction can keep us from having a vibrant prayer life. It is a cultural idol. It's a form of maybe a greater cultural idol in general, which is just busyness. We're addicted to a packed life and a packed schedule. We'll fill our times with things that make us feel important. We're addicted to a sense of achievement, and we can believe that if we're not doing something, then maybe we're good for nothing. Tech distraction and busyness, to me, are idols that demand our attention. And it, they demand our attention in a way that keeps us from beholding a God who is invisible and living an awakened life. They keep us from having rhythms of secret prayer. Arthur Murray said that God is a God who hides himself from our natural sight. As long as we're mainly occupied with our thoughts and plans instead of God, we will not meet with the one who is spirit, the one who is unseen. But to the person who withdraws from all of that is, uh, and prepares to wait on God alone, that person the Father will reveal himself to. And so our prayer challenge for this week it's very, very simple. Rock solid simple. It's going to bring us into a, a rhythm of secret prayer. And the challenge is this. It's to name a time and a place that Monday through Friday, you will pray in secret. The secret to secret prayer, the secret sauce to the secret sauce, is to have a time and a place. To have a time and a place. So I want to do a little reflection exercise here for a second, and for you to think, to grab all of your imaginative powers from the darkened night and the end of a long day and a rather long um, worship service, and I want you to imagine, what is the secret place in which you could pray this week? Is it a loft or a bedroom or a chair? Is it a couch or a kitchen table? Is it a spot in your workplace or maybe a prayer garden? I want you to register that right now internally. Where is the secret place? And then I want us to reflect and to think of a time, a time where we can meet with God in, in private. When are you least hurried, least distracted and busied? 
what's the time? Is it when you wake up or when you go to sleep? Is it a lunch hour? Is it a mid-afternoon? Is it a break in between classes? Go ahead internally. Name the time to yourself where you can pray in secret. There have been seasons of my life where prayers has been nearly impossible or it's just simply fallen off the tracks. I remember one night, a sophomore year of, of college, another college story, sophomore year of college, um, becoming aware that I hadn't prayed in the better part of a year. Um, I had done a good job of praying secretly in high school, but going to a small liberal arts university that had chapel three times a week and community groups during the week in the dorms and um, Christian professors who are constantly trying to inject Jesus things into our brains, I just sort of dissolved away my rhythm of secret prayer. And so it came to me in awareness one evening that it had been in the better part of a year. And um, I remember sitting in that chair at my desk and praying, God, I'm sorry, I feel like I've grown lukewarm. I have not pursued you in such a long time personally. If you give me an opportunity to do it, then I'll pursue you fresh. And at that moment, I got a knock on the door. And I opened the door, and it was a friend, and he invited me to a prayer meeting, and that's a story for another time, but it was incredibly powerful night of encountering the love of Jesus. So if you're like me, the words like, I'm too busy, or I'm too bored, or I'm too overwhelmed to pray, or I'm too worried to pray, can sometimes emanate up out of my heart and out of my mouth, and it's in those times where I find that my spirit has become the most lukewarm. It's the most lukewarm to God. I believe that our devotion to God is most threatened not by things like atheism, not like by the big kings, atheism or deconstructionism or um, secularism. I think that our devotion to God is most challenged by the subtle idols of our culture, distraction and entertainment and busyness, and that ultimately it creates within us indifference. And an indifferent person you could describe as lukewarm. God's spirit cannot inhabit lukewarm people. Our indifference towards God creates an unwelcome and inhospitable environment for his presence and purposes. If we're going to have a rhythm of secret prayer that leads to anchoring us in the presence of God. Even just five minutes a day, it's going to be in opposition and conflict with the idols that keep us out of devotion with God, and it's going to be as our heart awakens in hunger afresh for his presence. Hunger afresh for his presence. Hunger is a spiritual virtue, but I'm not so sure that hunger is an emotion. Prayer is not necessarily like I'm going to um, build up as much enthusiasm as I can for God or I'm going to fake an emotion or I'm going to um, strive and force myself into a position. Being hungry for God doesn't mean necessarily feeling like praying, but it does mean acting in devotion. Our feelings and our actions are connected and interlinked. Our feelings, when trained by the Spirit, are good leaders, and they'll lead us to do godly things, and we'll be led by the fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience. But many of us 
do not experience God and his emotions in that way in our everyday lives. And that's when devotion and action becomes very, very important. Believe when we act in ways that communicate to God that we're devoted to you, like prioritizing the place of secret prayer, then our feelings and emotions will come into alignment with the Spirit of God. And obedience to God will become natural. Obedience to God will become natural. To close, I want to share the story of my grandpa. Just hitting, hitting home here. He's 87 years old. And he has had a rhythm of secret prayer for the entirety of his adult life. Maybe 50, 60 years now, he's prayed every day. And um, it's so fascinating. He's losing a bit of his mind due to dementia and sometimes struggles to remember um, my name. Um, he'll sometimes remember, he'll sometimes struggle to remember his favorite uh, football team or the, the words and the phrases that he he, he needs to access. He, he can't quite get there. But when it comes to sharing the things that the Spirit is speaking to him in prayer, he's almost always articulate. He has a rock-solid clarity of what God is doing with, within him in his prayer life. My cousins, um, a little while back, gave him a picture, a picture with our whole family, faces, and then they wrote the names um, on the bottom of that picture. And the faces you can't see anymore. And the names are, are smudged out. Because as he's done for my entire life, every time I talk to him, he says, um, he says, I've been praying for you today. I've been praying for you today. And he's been gripping that, that picture every day. And the faces are smudged and the names are gone. Hunger, it's this really intangible spiritual quality. The scripture talks about it as a virtue nearly throughout the Old and New Testament alike. And when increasing our devotion to God, I believe that God's calling us to be a praying church, not just when we're together, but when we're separate and in the secret place. Hunger has an importance. If lukewarmness and indifference creates an inhospitable environment for the spirit, that, that's going to be like damp wood. But for people who are hungry, they have an active movement towards God. And that active movement may not be, like I said, just raw enthusiasm. It may be five minutes a day in a secret place of prayer. But hungry people, the scripture talks about as dry kindling. Dry kindling for the fire of God to fall in a fresh way believe that if we move to God in prayer, in fresh hunger, that he will fill us with the fire of his holy love. Anyway, my grandpa, he's about all but lost, you know, his mind in dementia, but I look at him and experience our conversation as a man who's on fire in the Holy Spirit. Daniel, in this passage, the scholars would tell us, we think of him as a young man but in reality, over the course of the, the decades and kings gone by, he would maybe be in his 80s. Three times a day, going to God in prayer. Will you join us in the invitation to prayer, the prayer challenges this January? Will you allow 
in this new year, God, to renew your hunger for him.